Ocelli. Second hour of the Ocelli Effect begins now here at Ocelli.com and the affiliated networks that carry the show. Of course, we're also happy to see you if you come upon us via your fondle slab of choice, your applicable application, etc., etc., through the various conventions where you can get podcasts and the networks that do choose to replay this show also welcome. Anyway, uh, it is still <laughs> a Monday night and uh, the first show of the week and second hour, we have with us James Corbett. Now, James has been somebody that uh, I have been observing for some years now, and I'm sure everybody who listens to this show, listen, if, if you found my show, I'm sure you ran across CorbettReport.com already. And if you haven't, pause the podcast, go find CorbettReport.com, see the voluminous information on a diverse array of subjects that are absolutely the same type of thing that we cover here, definitely with a decidedly different personality. Uh, but uh, James is one of the real, let me put it to you this way. There are individuals that uh, call themselves, and I hate the title alternative media, but in case, in case for some crazy reason you don't know who James is, uh, I literally think of him as the bar in alternative media circles. And ah, still, I want to get rid of that title. Independent media, open source investigations, uh, an incredible amount of information that is uh, that is available over at CorbettReport.com and uh, somebody who I'm extremely happy to have uh, interacted with during this journey of discovery that uh, that I've been on in the media personally. So with that <laughs> all in hand, uh, I'm going to begin the conversation just by saying, James, how are you tonight? Well, after a glowing in introduction like that, I'm blushing like a maiden, but uh, I'm doing well personally. I just hope that people will be able to find CorbettReport.com when they type that into their browser. And who knows how long that will continue to uh, to take place. Well, interesting thing, you know, I, I turn around and I use a Gmail account now. I've had many different email accounts, but even when I am in my own Gmail account and attempt to go to my own website, which is clearly not something that is the largest household name in the world or anything like that, and is certainly not something that contains any sort of trigger words, you know, I try and go from my own Gmail account to my own website, and I am told that this is a dangerous website to go to, despite the fact that I've obtained a, you know, Google security certificate and all of that kind of good stuff doesn't matter. Seems like <laughs> there is a, uh, a program there. And now I sound like one of those paranoid guys who says, Hey, I think I'm being marginalized. I think they're trying to keep me out of the search engines. I think they're trying to minimize the possible reach that I might be able to get my hands on. And you know what? YouTube and Google at all, let's call it, uh, is is part of that equation, and it turns out <laughs> I saw very recently a video titled uh, "Let's see, what was it? Corbett it was shots fired, Corbett report hit, I think something like that." And uh, I took a listen as I listened to a lot of your stuff, and I found that uh, oddly enough, the very responsible, very uh, again reference oriented open source guy that you are you are suffering from the same sort of marginalization <laughs> the same sort of campaign of uh censorship it seems like that uh i'm experiencing living in the alleged united states uh except well you're a canadian who actually lives in japan and seems like you're suffering from the 
I don't know. Am I missing something here, James? I don't think so. I think what we need really is a word for this because uh, censorship may not be the right word per se because it brings to mind the idea that it, people are being actively and com- completely blocked. It's it's soft censorship, which is even more insidious in some ways because it makes you feel like you're in control and you can still go to this place. But are you sure you really want to go? So I, too, have experienced many people emailing me with screenshots showing that when they try to click on the show notes that I always put in the YouTube videos that they are being redirected to a YouTube page that says, are you really sure you want to go to this potential malicious attack website known as CorbettReport.com? And one of the uh, uh, the but- buttons that you can click is actually back back to safety. <laughs> and the other one is like a continue, uh, continue ahead or whatever. Um, right. So it's I mean, they are truly putting out some interesting stops right now, although to play devil's advocate and skeptic on all of this. I uh, someone I think on Twitter posted the link to a YouTube redirect to YouTube.com that was formed in such a way that YouTube gave that same warning. Are you sure you want to go to this potential attack website, YouTube.com? So there's obviously some sort of filter thing that they've put on recently, and I don't think they have all the kinks worked out. So who knows exactly what way they're going to be attempting to use this. But one thing I do know is that my recent video of all the videos I've done on all the controversial topics that I've talked about over the years that you would even kind of expect at some point that the GooTube censors would try to do something about, including many videos about Google and why it is an evil corporation and why we must get off of the Google Google monopoly on the Internet. Um, the one that actually seems to have been effectively soft censored now is a video I did last week on the normalization of the humanization of robots. And it was, for the most part, a pretty factual presentation, me talking to a camera for five minutes about things like Sophia the robot in Saudi Arabia being given citizenship and uh, the sex robot phenomenon that people are who are following the news will undoubtedly have seen, whether they're looking for it or not, because it is all over. It's, it's a, a undoubted full court press right now that's going on to try to promote this idea of sex robots. A very strange phenomenon. And I was talking about this and warning about the dangers of making robots into humans or persons with rights and all of that and the potential implications of that. And that video got age restricted. So you now have to be signed in, logged into YouTube with an account that verifies your age is over 18 in order to watch me talking to a camera for five minutes. Because apparently this is just so, so, oh my God, oh, what's happening? Now, you might think, oh, it's because I use the word sex robot in the description of the video. And maybe because this is probably an AI that flags these things. It's probably not a human being that is physically flagging every video. So you might think, well, it's just the word sex robot. Well, there's two things about that. One, I have appealed that decision to YouTube and I have yet to hear back from that appeal. So we'll see when a human being actually does look at my video, if they do determine it's still worthy of age restriction. The other part is there are many videos up on YouTube that use that, that term in the title, sex robot, that are not age restricted, including ones from The Guardian and other MS outlets surprise surprise so clearly it isn't just an automatic thing that's happening here it is targeting certain people and one of them is vin armani who i talked to on my show yesterday um who does a show via activistpost.com he was doing his show he was talking about this same issue the personification of robots and and whether you can rape a robot and things like this that video didn't just get censored in in particular the entire activist post channel on YouTube that didn't have any copyright strikes or any other type of uh, notification against it was taken down and has not been restored. So uh, there's something about this issue that's really pushing some buttons. 
Well, and the strange thing is that it is not a phenomenon that is restricted to only the controversial subjects and keywords. And 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 here's how I'll explain it to you. Um, I have found with uh, communicating with other YouTubers that do things that are quite a bit mundane, sort of benign uh, in one way or another. You know, uh, talking about television shows, rating music, things like this that they do as a vlog, right? Not uh, not heavy on the information, nothing controversial. In fact, it's almost like a secondary free promotional item for the producer of said media that's out there on YouTube. And some of them are experiencing exactly the same problems. Now I'll tell you a personal story, which I found extremely funny. I placed three of the very same video on my channel, which was a, uh, a guy dressed up like Jesus Christ uh, in order to uh, endorse the Ocelli effect, right? This is a humorous video, obviously. It's a bit tongue-in-cheek, all of that. And um, this guy does this, and my logo is in slightly different places in these three videos. That is the only difference. The soundtrack is the same. The imagery of the individual is the same. Nothing else is different. And guess what I got? Three different results. One of them demonetized just outright within a few minutes. Another one banned in certain countries and being uh, advised as adult material. And a third one untouched, monetized and everything without an issue. Um, and meanwhile, the logo is the same. It's just that one of them goes across the bottom of the screen. One of them is on the lower right. One of them is on the upper left. The algorithm seems quite random to me, James, based on yes. this. And yes. it also seems to me as though independent media is the target more than, uh, say, something controversial, something outside of the box. It seems as though we are all meant to uh, be herded as uh, surfers out there on the World Wide Web into anything that is corporate backed or corporate sponsored. Um, and that's that. So if you're an independent producer, I think this is this is who's being targeted. And I think uh, a lot more people need to get upset about it, considering uh, there were people trying to, oh, I don't know, make a living at this based on mm -hmm. the fact that they could produce something that was consumable, that was entertainment value, that had a, a basis in some interest. So I think there's a lot more to this, and we're going to discover more over the next year, especially with the net neutrality thing and yes. all of yeah, that well, argument. Yeah, I, in fact, we can add more to this and there's more complications being thrown every day. Just the other day I was using Firefox, which, of course, has recently done its big upgrade update and got a warning when I tried to do a search, as I usually do uh, via the auspices of startpage.com. I got a warning to say that, uh, uh, that this this search engine may be out of date. Are you sure you don't want to make Google your default search? And I had to click that I actively know. Let's proceed with the search that I wanted you to do because this is Firefox's new new routine that they're pulling out. And I'm getting some emails today or some Twitter um, uh, feedback today that there's people having difficulty logging on to basic sites like Newsbud or, um, or uh, BitChute.com. Uh, other independent media sites um, right. basically getting this connection is not private. This website may be impersonating or stealing your financial information and not letting people go forward into it. So there's there's new censors or soft censorship or hard censorship or whatever this is that's being rolled out every single day now. And it's almost difficult to keep up with all of it. Well, that's true. And this is built into a 
Hmm. A paradigm which is uh, not often mentioned or is mentioned in a way that is not well defined. And I think it comes down to something that links to two pieces of very brilliant work that you've done recently. Uh, Of course, one of them more like a year ago and one of them more like a month ago. But either way, uh, this uh, these two documentaries and also the addendums to them uh, called What in the World? Excuse me, not What in the World. (laughs) How and why actually the two of them together let's put them together how and why big oil conquered the world pretty interesting stuff and some people might say oh gee i don't want to hear another dissertation on oil and the evils of the petrochemical industry uh but that is not what you have restricted this discussion to and uh, technocracy plays a role in this so i wonder for the uninitiated on this if you could provide a brief synopsis of the idea that is presented in those two documentaries, which I will provide the links for in this podcast later on, uh, the, the the free links on uh, YouTube and also there the will honestly be a, a link to CorbettReport.com. And even if they do tell you that it's a dangerous website to go to, uh, I can say that it is no more dangerous than anything else out there on the web. Uh <laughs> being that it's on the web uh, and and certainly a lot less malicious than things like Facebook and Twitter. So go ahead, uh, James, could you explain a little bit of that for us? I certainly could. And you raise an interesting point because I'm not sure, I mean, whether the titles are effective in conveying or at least getting the right kind of people to watch this documentary or not or how that works because one thing that is certain is that just from the titles themselves you may be expecting a certain type of documentary with a certain narrative and you're probably not going to get that um, because this is about so much more than just the the oil industry per se so the basic thesis that underlies both parts of this documentary as you say the first one came out almost two years ago now the the second one came out just last month or october um and the basic underlying idea here is that yes there were as as most people know there's the the, say the standard oil monopoly that formed in the united states there's the uh, royal shell company that formed out of a couple of other companies in the early 20th century in europe and bp and in england and all of that but uh, the the real point of this story is not those oil companies per se and what they have been up to, but the people who founded those oil monopolies and what they did with the, the wealth and power that came with that is much more of a, a much broader story and in some ways a much more uh, important story to understand for the, the nature of the world that we live in than simply oil itself because – well, let me interject stand- something there, though, James, because here's here is where you are so, so brilliant at presenting this. Um, people do not often recognize the impact that these industrialists. Yes, we hear all about how this evil industrialist family, uh, you know, dominated, cornered the market, et cetera, and uh, so on and so forth. And fortunes are made and lives are lost. And this is, well, gee, the uh, the refrain of humanity through the song that has been sung for centuries. Okay, fine. But uh, it goes well beyond that because literally the shape of society itself has been determined by the infrastructure that these people created in order to do all of those things that we easily point to all the time. I mean, is is that not a, a good way to explain why, why it is that uh, you go in the direction you do with these uh, two documentaries? 
I think so. I mean, fundamentally, this is about control of society, the direction that society is going in. And the way to do that, although it seems obvious, perhaps in hindsight, it may not have been obvious in the 19th century when these families were first monopolizing this industry. But the way to do that is to consolidate control over the primary energy resource. And if you can do that, then you really have uh, have society by the cojones, as it were. And from that position of leverage and power, you can then leverage that power into other aspects of society. So this is not about the oil industry per se. This is about education. This is about the pharmaceutical industry. This is about agriculture and ultimately genetic engineering and things like along those lines. And from that position of, of power and leverage, we move towards the dominant narratives of the 20th century, the ones that came along uh, in the environmental movement and specifically with the, the global warming, uh, the anthropogenic climate change hypothesis, and moving into technocracy, which is going to be one of the defining narratives of the 21st century, which is what all of this, you know, robot personhood and all of these types of issues are really swirling around. Well, right, but technocracy is not something that is easily defined in 30 seconds or less. I mean, let's be honest, there are many elements to this, and people throw this about to represent only the technological advances uh, of, of recent years and how dangerous they might become because they decouple humanity from their own natural being and uh, literally are there to replace humanity, you know, the Terminator universe, this kind of thing. Uh, uh, people think of, but technocracy is a much deeper subject, has greater historical roots. And I wonder if you wouldn't uh, try and, you know, in short form, uh, represent that to uh, the listeners tonight. Well, I'll give you the one sentence summary that Patrick Wood, um, the author of Technocracy Rising, which is an absolute must read if you're interested in this subject. Uh, he, he said uh, in 1938, the technocrats own magazine called the technocrats magazine defined technocracy as a system of scientifically engineering society. And I think that is kind of the broad overview of this subject, but it obviously there's a lot more detail to this. And I think the, the system by which they are going to scientifically engineer society and that was written into the, the fabric, the DNA of the technocrat movement, as it were, in the 1930s by or a, a faithful servant of the oligarchs, um, M. King Hubbard, who is known for Hubbard's peak, a.k.a. peak oil theory, because he was a researcher at uh, at, at Royal Dutch Shell um, uh, in the 1950s when he developed the peak oil theory. But in the 1930s, he was one of the founders of the technocratic movement, um, Technocracy Inc., along with Howard Scott, who was this revolutionary engineer who actually had no credentials and was complete fraud. But at any rate, they founded this movement called Technocracy Inc., which was actually a huge movement at the time. And you can go and look through all the, the footage and, and, and various things that they have online that you can see the, the, the footprint that this movement had at that time, especially in the 1930s during the Great Depression when people were casting about looking for new ideas because capitalism had failed, we must try something else. Of course, there was a lot of communist ideas and other things swirling around in, in the U.S. Uh, at that time. But one of the ideas that people were hitting on was technocracy, rural society by technocrats, engineers and scientists because they, they know best about how to do that in this new world that we're moving into of this industrial manufacturing base. Now we have these new scientific techniques for managing that. And their idea was the fundamental control point, the way that we can direct society and and do this in a way that will perfectly balance production and consumption in our society so that everyone will be employed, everyone will have a base a salary that they can subsist on is to base 
our economy not on money in the monetary system that we have today, but base it on energy. And their idea was to create energy credits. There was going to be a techno, um, a technate was what they called it, which it, instead of a government, there would be a, this ruling class clique of scientists and engineers who would determine an energy budget for the North American continent. That was the dream of the technocrat movement. Um, and they would determine there so many you know megawatts of power will be our budget for this year. And they would issue energy certificates to meet that budget. And you as a citizen would receive these certificates, so a certain amount that has been apportioned to you. And you would buy, purchase things in the economy with these certificates, which are representing the energy that has been budgeted for the, 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 the continent. And that, that was their idea. Ultimately, you can, you can determine how much energy goes into the production of a good, and thus you can uh, purchase a good, quote unquote, with the, the energy certificates that you're issued. And once you run out of your, your allotted credits, well, t- you know, uh, you're out of luck. Right. Um, and that's the way they were going to perfectly manage the system. So they would know everything that's happening in the economy and they could balance consumption and production perfectly. That was the idea. And it seems like a, a, a crazy idea even today. It was so much crazier in the 1930s, the idea that they would be literally monitoring all transactions in, in real time in the economy and and determining, making all these calculations about how much energy was produced and how much how much needs to be produced. And all of this um, was, was fa- pie, pie in the sky fantasy in the 1930s. But fast forward to the 21st century and these ideas, which never really went away, the technocracy movement went away. But the, the technocrats themselves did not go away. They kept working on this idea. And interestingly enough, technocracy had its real start in the basement of Columbia University back in the 1920s. Um, and it's from Columbia University that you get people like Zbigniew Brzezinski, who comes to the attention of David Rockefeller of the oligarch Rockefeller family because he wrote a book about between two ages, talking about the coming technotronic era, which was essentially technocracy dressed up um, for the late 20th century. And these ideas continue to hover around. And now we're at a point where it is it is feasible. In fact, in some degree, it's already happening that all retail, everything that's happening in the economy can and is being measured, data, database, tracked, collected in real time. And we do have a system where it is feasible. They could start issuing some sort of energy credits for people to use instead of money. And lo and behold, one of the ideas that's become popular in the past decade is carbon credits, carbon rationing. You should have a carbon ration card that you are allotted a certain amount of carbon footprint that you are allowed to produce, and they'll measure your your, your purchases or your, your driving or whatever it is in your carbon footprint that you're leaving behind. And once you reach your limit, you can buy some more if you have the money. And if you don't, you're out of luck. This is essentially – this is exactly what the technocrats were talking about a century ago, but now it is starting to actually happen. Well, it seems a little less benevolent than the, uh, the uh, <coughs> proposals of, of – uh, geez, his name is, escapes me at the moment. But the scientist in one of the Zeitgeist movies who uh, talks about reengineering society uh, yes. in, in, in a similar Fresco, sort of way. It? Something like that. Yeah, Jacques is the first name. I know that. But the idea sticks with me more than anything. This managed city that seems extremely benevolent in its nature. But at the same time, there's a bit of a dark side to all that. And, uh, you know, on the one hand, I can see the appeal for those of us that have experienced the uh, system of scarcity that is in place now. But uh, but but isn't that interesting that this seems to blossom not only in the academic world, but even in the 
well, allegedly alternative thought processes world. You know what I mean? Um, yes. What, what, yes. What are your and thoughts I on think that? that is not well, I think that is not coincidental. I think that there is this this idea that runs through it. And to some extent, I don't I don't get into questioning the the motives of people who are promoting various ideas because I can't possibly know what's in the hearts and minds of of people who are saying this. But I do believe that the probably the vast majority of the original technocrats truly believed in this idea and they truly believed that they could make a better society if only we put the the good engineers and scientists in charge they would know best what to do i think there are people who genuinely believe that and still to this day i think there are people who genuinely believe that uh, that is possible but i think as with every other movement that ever takes place it is always a question of okay yeah you have the idealists and the people who believe in the vision but who is funding that vision? Who is backing it? Who is shaping the way that that vision becomes reality? And it always goes back to people like David Rockefeller plucking Zbigniew Brzezinski out of uh, relative obscurity at Columbia University and making him the co-founder of the Trilateral Commission that then goes on and starts engineering society in a way that will make it beneficial to the monopolists and the people who want complete control and surveillance over everything in the economy at all times. Isn't that a wonderful idea? You take these people who have this ideal and they're working to it for whatever altruistic purposes they may believe, but hey, it kind of aligns with your own vision, so you'll just make sure that you shape it in that way. And I think that is the that is really the the modus operandi of the of the oligarchy, as I call it in these documentaries. Um, the people who are the monopolists, and that is ultimately what they believe in. Competition is a sin, not because they're pious, you know, religious adherents, but because they believe monopoly, they're giving them all the power is the way we should structure and function as society that will be best for society. And they believe this because they have some sort of quasi pseudoscientific rationale of uh, eugenics, which I go into in the beginning of why big oil conquered the world that I think these, these types of families truly believe in. They truly believe they are genetically superior and thus deserve to rule over everyone. And that means they need to be in these monopoly positions of power and they need complete control over every aspect of society. And the best way to do that is to control it right there, not even at the monetary base, but at the energy base. If they can get us on, ultimately, I think this is where the smart grid and smart cities of the future is going. If they can get us on that system, they have complete control over everything that is happening in your day-to-day life at every single moment. And we're just seeing the beginning of the thin edge of the wedge of that with these types of soft censorship issues. Well, I mean, once we're all wired into the database and using whatever government-issued digital currency, and they just flip a switch and suddenly you can't buy anything. I mean, this is really becoming possible right now, and we are being engineered to want to even embrace this idea. Well, yeah, and even these uh, offerings now of a couple of cities being built in desert areas, interesting that, uh, you know, once you're an island alone in the desert, right, uh, you're going to require resources to escape the desert. Seems like a uh, an interesting sort of uh, surrogate prison system, really, these cities that they're proposing in Saudi Arabia and Arizona at the same time. Um, at this point, I'd like to enter one of the questions from uh, from a live listener, if you don't mind. And uh, that is, uh, does, does Mr. Corbett agree that Rockefeller's plan, as outlined in How Big Oil Conquered the World, uh, given its uh, expansive scope, is far too complex a plan to have been thought of by one man? That is uh, one of the questions from the listener, uh, Midran. 
yes, I certainly wouldn't ever say that this this whole coordinated agenda is ever down to one person or even necessarily one one small clique or one small group of people. I think that this can only function in a broader mesh of people who are guided uh, by an ideology, essentially. And that ideology, I think, again, I think the, the rationale that they give for this is is the eugenical rationale, that they truly believe they are superior and thus deserve to rule over us. But I, that I don't want to make that into a, uh, a simplistic thing where it's it's just, a, you know, one group of people in a shadowy room or something. No, I think there's a lot of people that were involved in forwarding this agenda, and they all, I think, are coming at it from their own perspectives. And sometimes their ideas and and uh, and their 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 thoughts for how to move this forward overlap and sometimes they conflict and there are i think power plays within these power circles so it certainly doesn't come down to one person and no one person could possibly even begin to comprehend all of the working parts within this let alone um have come up with it all himself or herself i think that would be cartoonish so no i i don't want i i did focus a lot on the rockefeller family in this documentary precisely because when people think of oil they probably do think of the rockefellers and i think it is a good way of seeing that broader picture of what's developing but i wouldn't want to say this is all the rockefellers and if we just got rid of the rockefeller family everything would be fine no this, this is clearly a coordinated agenda with many working parts uh, that have been brought to fruition by many different people who all to some extent or other share the 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 vision ultimately of a of a completely controlled society although again just like when we brought up the uh you know the the movie zeitgeist there and the engineered cities we see there uh you know i i think this is literally somebody coming at it from the angle of no longer wanting to see the system of scarcity that is uh utilized now to control populations being the primary force in the world, uh, they, they, they seek uh, something that is a bit more egalitarian and they're turning to technology to manage it. Um, it's, it, it winds up being the same thing in a way, but, uh, but it's certainly coming at it from a different angle. I mean, uh, most of the people that uh, sign off on this kind of thing or are supportive of this sort of idea, I don't think for a moment believe that this is the great way to control society. Um, you know, as in for the benefit of some as opposed to others. Uh, it seems like a, a more equally distributed, you know, <laughs> right? Here, here we go with the with the ideals and exactly what does appeal to uh, your particular sensibilities. Um, but at the same time, the dangers remain the same, it seems like to me, if, if we decouple ourselves. And by no means does, does this... Uh, represent me saying that I have any sort of answer to this. I mean, uh, technology is a tool, any of it, and it always has been. And uh, it is the creator of tools, and it is a tool in and of itself to create more tools. Uh, and how we utilize them uh, definitely says something about our character. Uh, but at the same time, do we want the, uh, the grand babysitter to be the uh, artificial intelligence of the future that might be able to figure out, uh, you know, that uh, I, I point to the Matrix, which is often mentioned, you know, just like Agent Smith says, well, you know, you people are not really like a mammal or any other kind of animal on the planet. You're more like a virus. I mean, if that equation comes into play, which it could in a very logical sort of way, uh, we, we have the, uh, the dystopic sort of, uh, you know, future scenarios laying before us um but it goes beyond that i i think it's uh 
the process in and of itself, even before the the, the grand uh, dystopia takes hold, uh, I think it would be uh, one of those things that would strip us slowly of, of who it is that we are as individuals. Um, I don't know. See, I'm, I'm kind of marinating on this with you live right now, but it's uh, it's an interesting thing to ponder. And uh, the fact that it's obvious, you know, that this is uh, being continued as a, uh, you know, because as you said, the historical roots of it go further back than, you know, yes. The, yes. the time when we uh, left aside transistors for, uh, you know, for chips. OK, right. Exactly. Well, let me bring this aspect into it, because I think something that I, I hope is one of the key takeaways, specifically from why big oil conquered the world, is that. The the oligarchs, the people who are who are advocating for this agenda and are working to bring it about are masters at false choices and misdirection. And I think that, if anything, is one of the values of a title like this, Why Big Oil Conquered the World, because it will bring in people of a certain uh, perspective who are interested in that narrative that they 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 believe already about big oil and what have you. Um, One of the points of this documentary is to show that uh, the people who believe that they are opposing the big oil order and the the, the oil industry and and what have you by supporting, for example, oh, well, now it's the environmental movement and now we're supporting all of these, uh, you know, the climate change uh, initiative and all of this uh, by showing that it is the same agenda. And it is in often in many cases, the same people who were piloting and steering the old oligarch agenda are behind this new agenda. And it is also working against the interests of the regular people who believe in all good faith and all earnestness that they are working against the old oligarch order are just bringing about a new oligarch 2.0 order, a technocratic order um, by supporting the agenda that seems to be going against it. And I think that is an important aspect of this. If we are looking in the wrong places or thinking about the wrong ways of combating this agenda, we will end up playing into it. And I think that explains some of this. Oh, well, okay, so we'll we'll have these robot cities that are, you know, where everything is apportioned by these computers that will know best how to take care of us. I mean, A, that that begs the question, well, okay, who is who is programming the computers? Who is giving the computers the, you know, the 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 basic parameters of what will create a good society? And well, there you go. That's the people who are in charge of society, not the computers. And B, it also begs the uh, economic calculation problem of um, uh, identified by Ludwig von Mises. You cannot have a, uh, a a rational way of apportioning what is actually valued by society without some sort of price discovery. And you can't do that within a system where there is no price discovery. Um, but beyond that, I think it it speaks to the point that people are always looking in the direction of centralization as the only possible way that we can do this. There has to be a single central place that is determining what's best for society, as opposed to the obvious real answer to that, which is decentralization, which is not promoted at all ever at any point by the oligarchs or the oligarch order or the people, the useful idiots or any of the others. It's always in the direction of centralization, these false choices that we're being given. And I think when we start to ponder that, we may start to discover what the actual way out of this is. Yeah, but the the, the trouble is there are many landmines here which are controlled and directed opposition that uh, appear to be actual opposition in its legitimate form, but at the same time still feed into the same agenda. As you point out, the environmental movement, I always find it interesting when uh, people wish to oppose 
certain things like uh, overreaching government and government, uh, you know, spending too much money on too many things. And yet they are fully supportive of something which is amazing. You know, I don't want to see jobs programs. I don't want to see corporate welfare. Okay, but you do support the military industrial complex as a whole, which is just so massive at this point. I mean, it's literally one of the only things that the United States exports uh, outside of, well, it's military as well, not just (laughs) the associated businesses, but, uh, you know, all of it together winds up being something where even when you appear to be on the opposite side of it, uh, you're you're actually still feeding the same beast. And yes. this is an yes. interesting thing when it comes to this uh, this technic- technocratic concept, you know, where, OK, well, gee, computers can decide things because they won't get emotionally involved and emotions are the real problem. And, well, gee, you know, what, what do you what do you do to get rid of emotions? You could get rid of the thing that has the emotions. Again, I leap to the dystopic in my mind. Um, and, and it's not because I have a fear of technology. Uh, I certainly don't. It's just that uh, I, I don't wish to see uh, life itself controlled, right? So, right. Well, it does beg the question, what does it mean to be human? And that is a real question that we are increasingly going to have to face. But uh, I, I don't want to leave people with generalities when we talk about controlled opposition. Let's look at specific examples from that documentary. Of course, people know about UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, which was founded by literal card-carrying, flag-waving eugenicist uh, Aldous Huxley's brother, Julian Huxley, who wrote in the founding document of UNESCO about the need to make eugenics uh, politically feasible once again. Uh, and I have that direct quote in the documentary itself. But he went on to co- to set up the and co-found the World Wildlife Fund with the uh, Prince Bernard of Royal Dutch Shell, uh, Prince Philip of Royal Dutch Shell and BP, and Godfrey A. Rockefeller of the Rockefeller family. This is the World Wildlife Fund, of course, which everyone thinks it's all about that cute panda logo, and they're, they're out for saving the environment. And then you look into World Wildlife Fund and what they've actually done, and in case after case after case, they buy up and uh, or otherwise uh, you know, move in on usually developing nations or uh, third world nations and take pieces of land well we need to use this as a wildlife preserve they kick off the indigenous peoples from that and then they allow certain companies in to develop that environmental uh, projects that they're working on and of course they get a cut of that the banks that are funding this get a cut of that through a bank that has been set up by the Rothschild family (laughs) you can't I mean you cannot make this stuff up it is so insane and all of the links to all of this is in the documentary itself but this is how it is done they set up the bureaucracy the international organizations they become the face of a movement that at heart i understand people do care about the environment they do care about the earth they do want to save the species that are endangered and, and things like this and i think that at heart that is a good idea but the, the 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 funding for this and the backing for it and the people who end up controlling this agenda and steering it in certain ways are the very people that you the the erstwhile supporters of these movements think they are fighting against. And then when we move into the technotronic era and the technocratic era, well, of course, that is exactly what is happening to this day. And even more so, because, of course, with all these technologies, the, the key central question is, 
who is funding the development of these technologies? These, the, the, this is expensive stuff to, to be working with and to be developing these structures and then to be implementing the various corporate um, ways that this is implemented in society as well as the, the ways that government works with that. I mean, smart grids and things like this don't just arise out of spontaneous market forces. They happen because there is a coordinated agenda between government and corporations that are being directed by certain people. And I think that's the way we have to understand what's happening right now. It is not the technology itself that is the problem. It is the way it is being implemented and how and why it is being implemented. And until we understand that, we how can we possibly fight against this agenda? Well, you know, it's very much like the, uh, the, the Planned Parenthood problem, which, you know, on the one hand, you want to see people be able to take control of their own lives, let's just say, from a, uh, a perspective of someone who believes that personal freedom should be a primary concern. But at the same time, when you understand that the founders of that particular organization, uh, you know, really had a eugenic agenda in hand, okay, and uh, we're looking to, uh, again, put another tentacle into the uh, into the octopus of uh, population control, you know, here we go again. It's controlling the population, not only uh, by numbers, but also by movement. And this is what oil is really about, as far as I'm concerned, because it, it controlled the way in which population could be designed literally. Because, look, it's just very simple. You can travel so far because of the fuel. You can uh, establish uh, living spaces in areas where maybe the uh, climate would have been inhospitable because of the connection to the energy grid, so on and so forth. I mean, all of these things are actually interconnected. And it seems like, here we go again, right? It's about those who are going to actually hold the the overarching control and if you give it over to say the master computer right which uh, will make the uh, the the cold and calculated decisions that'll make everything equal for everyone again maybe appealing to the egalitarian desires of uh, of others and uh, and and those of us out here who do wish to see an equal playing field for everyone let's say um, it it seems like you're on the right side of the issue but. Again, they've already implemented the organizations that you're going to join. They've already created the, uh, you know, the the framework for the uh, dogma, if you will, so that uh, really it's just a matter of, well, plug yourself into it and you'll become part of the system one way or another. And uh, here's your role. Right. I mean, uh, am I am I oversimplifying this? No, I think I mean, I think this is this is the picture that is being painted. It is um, uh, we have to understand that we're dealing with people that have studied human behavior at least for, you know, a century in earnest at this point, really centuries. But at any rate, in the modern era with the behaviorists and what have you, they understand how to put people in situations where Certain things will be the natural way that people think is to act and and to behave. And this uh, goes back to what I was talking about in how big oil conquered the world, the control of the education system itself and how that was done, the way that was done through the money that was leveraged through the monopolies, um, not just the oil monopoly of the Rockefellers, but also Carnegie money was heavily involved in that in the U.S. context in particular um, to shape the education system into what at the time was an open conspiracy. There was nothing there was nothing hidden about it. The, the, the progressives at the time in the early 20th century talked about this openly. 
family, including Woodrow Wilson and others, that their their aim was to not to create the, the next artist class or free thinkers or philosophers. It was to create good workers for the industrial system. That was the aim of the, the education system that they were putting into place. Uh, again, there's nothing conspiratorial about that. It was wide open, accepted and acknowledged. And I think they did a g- great job of that, conditioning people to basically accept the uh, the school life would be, well, that's how you continue with life. So there is uh, the ringing of the bells and you're, you're habituated to certain tasks at certain times and then you'll switch to something else and, and uh, there, no independent inquiry. There's always a teacher there to grade you and 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 these sorts of things that we're habituated into and we are so habituated into that that to from our perspective it's almost impossible to imagine what what would be the alternative to that no schooling i mean what what, what are you talking about um and i think that's the aspect of that we have to be looking at here ultimately if you have control of children from a very young age you can condition them into accepting various ideas that would have been unthinkable to their parents. And that has not always been the case. Uh, The first compulsory schooling laws were in Massachusetts in 1852. And before that point, I mean, it's not like education wasn't happening. In fact, America at that time was one of the most literate populations the world had ever known at that time. And you had... uh, you know, I mean, the American Revolution founded on tracts like Common Sense, which had been read by a staggering percentage of the population because everyone was reading and talking and participating and active. And that was before there was this compulsory education. So we have to understand how how deep this agenda is and how how it extends into every aspect of our life, even to the extent that we don't even understand how it's it's conditioning us from a very, very early age to accept certain things, to not question other things, and to basically un, unschooling us, not how, not how to be critical thinkers, but how to be obedient workers. And, uh, and after generations of that kind of conditioning, how, you know, what, what incredible disadvantage the average person is growing up in this system. No, you're you're exactly on point. Of course, we're uh, down to the last quarter of this hour, so I really want to make sure that people go out and find how a big oil conquered the world and why big oil conquered the world. These uh, two documentaries are available at CorbettReport.com, but uh, you you can you can find them elsewhere as well. But I suggest you go to CorbettReport.com certainly. Um, and if there's any other, I, I know on YouTube you have the extras. I know that uh, through your site, everything is available anyway. Uh, now, can you go there without it telling you it's a dangerous, malicious website? Who knows? Uh, depends on your browser and I guess the mood of the artificial intelligence that day. But um, at any rate, I mean, the, these are uh, two things that I think are absolutely revolutionary in the way in which they go to uh, to explain things in depth with context, with historical, again, context for each of these developments as they've emerged. I mean, and realistically, James, you, you could probably do your work just on this particular subject for the next year and not complete it, honestly. And it's not because of you. <laughs> it's not because you're not capable of it. It's just that there is so much information involved and there is so much history that goes into this uh, this agenda that we see now, I mean, it, it's just it's absolutely uh, astonishing to me that uh, that it, no one has actually really done is. this before. Yeah, let me back you up on that because it is something that I consciously know about and have obviously. I mean, this this documentary didn't just come about. This is really the the result of years and years of research that I've been doing into these subjects. And even so, even knowing 
so much of this information already, but going into the putting this together and trying to consolidate it and put it into a narrative and make it into a documentary, it still absolutely blows me away. It boggles my mind just how deep this really is, how much information is out there, how how just on the surface, I'm just scratching the surface of this issue and there is so much more to explore. But the, the, the historical continuity of this is really real. I mean, I cannot stress that enough um, that you really do see the, the real same people going from the eugenics movement into the environmental movement, into the technocratic movement, and you see the funding of this and you can, you can dig into the documentation of this and you will find this historical continuity that's going on that has been completely occluded from public view because I don't know about you, but I, I, probably even five years ago, I had never heard of the technocracy movement, but it was a huge thing at the time and it continued under other names. Eugenics was the hot superstar science of the early 20th century, the way climate change is the, the hot superstar science of the early 21st century. Everybody who's anybody talks about it and is concerned about it just as they were about eugenics. And then World War II and all that messiness hit and they flip a switch and crypto eugenics. You don't hear that word anymore, but it's still embedded in the in the DNA, if you will, and in the genes of of a lot of these scientific ideas that are being forwarded now. And it's that's that's what we're dealing with. It's it's something that you can trace this if you have the the name or the framework or the, the sort of see the overall picture of it, you can trace this quite easily, but you have to know, you have to be given that key. And if I do nothing else, if, if just this work, how and why big oil and, and the follow-up document uh, episodes I'm doing, if that can be the key for people to unlocking this and, and seeing the bigger agenda and starting that exploration, that would be worth it for me. That would be for, for me, the, the, the best thing that I can do because it really is there. I just want people to see it and start looking for it themselves. Mm. Now, here's a, uh, a question from uh, one of the Skype people just uh, listening into the show, and uh, I don't know the answer to this, so I'm going to just put it to you directly um, because I have not watched every single one of the extras that you put with, out with this uh, material. But have you uh, also covered the way that the language has been controlled and contrived in order to uh, implement eugenic agendas uh, in then they're referring to uh, how I talk about how there is a racialist aspect to uh, American society, uh, which is you know something that I think is built in uh, to our language. Language, literally, uh, the 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 terms, the the way that we communicate, uh, and and I do mean in long form as opposed to the short form that we get through texts and things like that now, and emojis and all this other nonsense. I do mean directly. That uh, within our language, even there is a structure that uh, can be uh, observable to show that this agenda is is even cre crept into our communications, uh, not just electronic and not just technological, but literally the language which we are taught to speak is part of this uh, equation as well. So uh, have, have you covered that subject or do you plan to cover it? Well, as as an English major back in my academic days, I 1000 percent agree with that that idea. And I, I do see it manifesting in a number of different ways. I have talked about language and its its political implications on a number of occasions. I have not explored specifically the eugenics link with language, but I did have an, uh, a, a short video up just a week or two ago um, under the title. I am a free trade. Uh, I'm a sustainable free trade globalist. Um, showing how so many of these ideas and concepts that at base can be about 
free humans that, that want to find a decentralized way of working with each other are co-opted and used by the power structure in ways that, that pervert the meaning of that. So that when you say that word, people will not even understand what you're saying. Sustainability, the concept that underlines that is not a, an evil concept, but when it's uh, piggybacked with Agenda 21 or Agenda 2030 or the UN or these these ideas, it becomes this very tainted word. So you can't say I'm for sustainability without people thinking you're for all of these other agendas that come along with that. And I think that is an insidious process. I do plan to say more about that and language and how it relates to the political agenda. Um, but I'm, I'm always interested in hearing people's examples of that. So if they have examples of certain linguistic uh, turns of phrase or, or words that have been co-opted or perverted or uh, flipped on their head, I'm always interested. So pe- people who have such ideas, please do contact me through CorbettReport.com with those ideas, and I'll see if I can incorporate that into future podcasts. Well, right. And you have a contact form there. Uh, there's certainly various ways to contact you. I think there's even a speak pipe function on your website as well, right? That is correct. You can leave me a voicemail message. I think it's up to uh, 90 seconds. Well, sure. I mean, there, there's always that or the long form. I do know that you read your emails and uh, actually you do uh, segments de- devoted to just the emails. Uh, I think it's just Ask Corbett or something like that. Questions for uh, Corbett. Right. Questions for Corbett. Thank you. See, you know what? I, I observe so much of your material. Quite honestly, I get involved in the information. I forget about your titles and things, to be honest with you. But uh, the information is so intense and delivered so well. Uh, you know, I, I got to tell people that uh, one of my source sites that I like to go to to check information in a lot of cases, to uh, to take a look at, at presentations that contain uh, all of the references. OK, even when uh, James was having a discussion with me about JFK documentation and I brought up something related to uh, the assassination guide. Uh, literally during that short presentation with him, he's got a, got the guide up on the screen, got a link to it. I mean, it's just it's it's amazing the amount of work you do. And uh, I've always considered it extremely impressive. And I've always been grateful that uh, that I've been able to interact with you during this particular time, because, uh, again, I, I, I do believe that CorbettReport.com is part of the vanguard of what should be in media, uh, regardless of what you want to call it, what should be an in independent media. Uh, You can see that at CorbettReport.com. But anyway, James, I would like to give you the last couple of minutes if there's anything you'd like to close with here and say three minutes or less. (laughs) I know we didn't really dig deeply into the subject, but I'm very sure we gave people an idea of where to begin. And uh, if you weren't interested in watching those documentaries before, you should be now. Yes. And let me let me just use that time to direct people to the documentaries themselves, because I think they do speak for themselves. And uh, if you go to corporatereport.com slash big oil, that is where the documentaries are hosted. You can find the GooTube versions of those. You can also download the MP4 video and the MP3 audio directly. Um, You can also there's a a hyperlinked transcript, every single thing that is said in those documentaries transcript, as well as the hyperlinks directing you back to the sources of those various statements and documents. So you can go and start exploring that. And again, I want to stress that is that is ultimately the point of this. I hope that people do get something out of this. But if nothing else, I hope that they are at least interested in starting to pick up the threads of this and doing the research for themselves, because I know from my own experience, that was the thing that transformed my life, really, was not 
not the information itself, but when I started to become interested enough to start to look at the information for myself and start looking it up, I think that's the process that snowballs and is really the the fundamental underlying block of the inquiry process that will underlie whatever solution uh, we ultimately come to um, and how to derail or uh, divert this agenda. Because as as you say, I don't have the answer, the answer for, for this, because it's obviously much bigger than any single person could possibly even understand, let alone effectively thwart. But if we don't start doing this research and really looking at these issues and digging things up and, and sharing this information with each other, then we are lost. Then there's no way we will ever be able to combat this agenda. So I just want to be, as I say, I hope this is a key that unlocks the door for people. That's what this is for. It is a resource. It is 100% freely available, although you can buy a DVD copy of the documentary if you want to support the work. Uh, but it is freely available, CorbettReport.com slash Big Oil. So please do go there and please take a look at this and uh, just see. Just see if there's anything there that uh, you want to dig your teeth into because I know different people have different uh, ideas and understandings and perspectives and experience that they can bring to bear on this that will help flesh out the story in different ways that I couldn't possibly do myself and that's what this is about well and there you go and without being informed you have no chance at becoming a part of the force multiplier that a mass of individuals can be that is the reality here like you said uh, one person you myself uh, many other intelligent people may not be able to sort this all for themselves but if we are all well informed we all at least have a chance to confront the collective enemy that certainly has us in mind collectively Uh, there you go so James Corbett thanks so much for joining me tonight I really appreciate this time and uh, I hope that we have more conversations like this in the future but at the same time James I would like to hope for the day when we don't have to have these Mm. conversations amen I uh, hear that there you go so one final note by the way another favorite of mine over at Corbett Report is New World Next Week and why because the back and forth between James and James Evan Pilato uh, from uh, MediaMonarchy.com is always entertaining and informative as well so in case you get yourself all you know drowning in the big oil documentaries and you want to take a break check out the news with New World Next Week over there too all of these things readily available at Corbett CorbettReport.com. Anyway, thanks to all you guys for tuning in tonight. And of course, a big thank you to James Corbett for showing up. Regular Joe, Dylan, everybody who is part of this, I do appreciate you. After all, I am merely Ocelli. All of you guys are the effect. Have a good night.